If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They were having a fairly good time with their feasting yeah. and everything. They're not living on the edge of existence. They're, they're so pretty well adapted. That was Susan Greeney talking about life in the Neolithic period. The Athenians were terrified of combat, just like modern troops. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that the vast majority of them not only fought, but fought extremely well. And that was Jason Crowley on warfare in ancient Greece. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. A recent experiment by English Heritage to find out more about Neolithic building methods has culminated in the construction of three Neolithic-style huts at Old Sarum in Wiltshire. They've been built using archaeological evidence unearthed from nearby Durrington walls. We sent our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, to the site while building was still in progress to talk to some of the volunteers and the experts involved. So... I'm standing with Susan, um, who is senior properties historian at English Heritage. Um, we're inside one of the um, one of the houses. Um, can you maybe just talk me through, you know, the, the structure of the house and, and what we're actually seeing? Okay, so we're standing in one of the largest and best preserved houses that was excavated, and these houses were excavated in 2006 and 7 at Durrington Walls, which is a site about two miles from Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. And when they excavated, what they found was small square structures with rounded corners, about yeah. five meters by about five meters, and that's what we're stood in a recreation of now. Okay. And the archaeologists found chalk beaten floors in the centre with a hearth. Yeah. They found evidence for possible furniture or beds and they found the stake holes where the walls had been stood. So what we've done is replicate that by building the walls in using the stake holes in exactly the same positions where we found them. Yeah. And then um, above us, um, the volunteers are now beginning to thatch the roof structure. So this one's that a bit like an upside down basket. It's, yeah. it's kind of like a wattle structure which yeah. goes right up and we've put a ridge on this one. Yeah. Some of the other buildings outside we've done a single apex. Um, this one's got a ridge. And um, the volunteers are also now putting chalk cob onto the wattle fences. So this is a mixture of um, local chalk and straw and water. And this is going to um, dry and form a quite hard casing to the outside of the buildings. Okay. 
Um, and they're, they're also thatchy at the moment as well, aren't they? So That's right, yeah, with wheat straw. How long do you think it will take to kind of thatch the whole, the whole um, thing? We should be finishing this one in the next week, week and a half, something yeah. like that. It won't take us very long. We've got to finish the thatching, we've got to finish the, the cob, and then we've got to lay the plaster floor. And this house in particular, we're also going to dress. We're going to put the furniture in and some okay. objects and that sort of thing. And, and what kind of, what's made you want to do this? What's, what kind of, I mean, it's a, it was an amazing find, but you don't, you know, you don't get many people who decide to recreate yeah, the houses. That's true, that's true. So um, at the new Stonehenge Visitor Centre, we've got an external gallery. Yeah. And in that external gallery are going to be these three recreated houses. Yeah. But we didn't, these are obviously part of the visitor attraction. So we couldn't do experimental archaeology on those houses because they've got to stand up to a million visitors a year. Yeah. And they've got to be part of the visitor experience. So what we wanted to do is test building the houses here first, test the different methods, test the different structures. And then when we build them at the visitor centre next year, they'll be really um, solid and good for the, for the future. Okay. Brilliant. So will they be built by volunteers as well? They will. Yeah, they'll be built in the spring of 2014. And are the houses being built as they would have been built, you know, in 2500 BC? Pretty much. We've been um, using some um, prehistoric flint tools to cut the wattle, yeah. cut the hazel. We've been um, using um, mixing and, and using prehistoric tools a bit. We have been using wheelbarrows. We haven't been very strict. We haven't said you cannot use a wheelbarrow, but we haven't been using, you know, chainsaws and that sort of thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, in, in essence, we are replicating the methods used. Fantastic. And, and how did these houses differ to the, the ones that sort of before this area? Okay, so these houses date from the late Neolithic period, which yeah. is about 2,500 BC, about 4,500 years ago. Yeah. Um, before this time, uh, in the early Neolithic, we do have some evidence for houses, um, rectangular, quite large rectangular houses. When, yeah. when farming first comes to Britain, we have large rectangular houses. And before that, we have a few structures, sort of wigwam type structures that were Mesolithic in date. Yeah. But in essence, from prehistory, ha- the evidence for houses is really, really rare. Yeah. And to have this evidence from Darrington is really unusual. Yeah. Uh, and the only other place really where there's such good evidence is at Scarabray and Orkney, where yeah. the houses are quite similar size and quite similar layout. And do you think, I mean, Stonehenge is very near, you know, is it likely that these people who, who once, you know, would have lived in these houses in this type of area would have had anything to do with the building? So Henge, how, how did it fit into that story? Okay, so Dunkington's about two miles away from Stonehenge mm. and these houses we know have been radio carbon dated to exactly the same time as the main stones, the sarsen stones, are being raised yeah. at Stonehenge. So um, it's quite likely that the people who are um, living in these houses, they may have been only living in the part of the year, they may have only been coming for a few months. Around the houses was evidence for feasting, um, Pig bones, cattle bones, pottery, lots and lots of rubbish outside the houses. They were yeah. seemed to be doing quite a lot of midwinter feasting in particular. So um, it's quite possible that there were some kind of midwinter rituals which were being enacted. So either the people were using Stonehenge or they were building Stonehenge. They definitely had some connection to Stonehenge. Yeah. And what sort of have you encountered any problems during the, the experiment? Uh, no, we've had a quite a cold spring. So I think some yeah. of the volunteers <laughs> have been particularly good and, um, and particularly cold at times. Yeah. Um, so it just shows you the kind of, you know, what it's like to be living and working outside, really. Yeah. Even, even at the time of year, which you might think would be quite nice. <laughs> and, and how would settlements like these have been arranged? I mean, I mean, how many people would you would have lived in a, in a hut like this? We don't really know because we haven't really got the evidence. No. But you can see it's quite a large space. Yeah. You can imagine a family or a small group of people living in here quite comfortably. How big would you say it is? It's about it's about five metres by five metres. Yeah. If you've got a hearth in the middle here, yeah. sort of beds and furniture around the edge. It's not a, it's not no. a kind of hovel, is it? It's quite a nice space. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, with the Stonehenge um, settlement at Durrington, we don't know whether it's... Um, a a priestly class perhaps it's all men perhaps Mm -hmm. it's all women perhaps it's families perhaps it's everybody we we don't really know that it doesn't seem to be typical everyday housing so it's a bit of a mystery who exactly might have been living in these houses and one thing that does strike me is that once the thatch does go on it's going to be quite dark in here yeah it will be Um, there are no no windows how would the smoke and things like that have got out okay well yeah it would be quite dark Um, obviously you've got light from the doorways and it's going to be interesting to see exactly how dark it is actually inside here um the hearth would have been in the centre of the room and um, the smoke would just percolate up through the roof. The drawer through, through from the doorway and up would just send the smoke up into the yeah. room. We're actually going to be doing some tests for that in okay. a few weeks' time. Once we finish the buildings, we're going to be lighting some fires and seeing what happens. Yeah. Seeing how smoke it gets in here, seeing what kind of wood burns quite well, seeing what happens to the smoke. But yeah. it should just percolate out through the thatch. What would um, Neolithic England have looked like to the people who would have lived there? What, you know, what, 
what would the environment have been like around them? Okay, well, it's largely, around Stonehenge in particular, it's, a, it's yeah. probably open grassland. Yeah. These people have got large herds of cattle and pigs, and they're, they're moving with their cattle around, um, probably following um, sort of regular seasonal routes. The, the population wouldn't have been massive, would have been quite scattered. You might yeah. not have seen other, you might have lived with a group of people, but not necessarily seen other people. But at particular times of year, midwinter perhaps, midsummer, you might have all come together to celebrate, to feast, to exchange goods, to meet each other. Mm. And I think it would have been a, um, you know, th- these people were knew their natural environment inside out. They knew exactly where to get their materials. They knew exactly how to catch the right birds and animals, yeah. where to get plants from. They they knew exactly what they were doing, and they were you know they were li- having a fairly good time with their feasting yeah. and everything. They're not living on the edge of existence. They're, they're so pretty well adapted. Quite a change from before. So they were farming and and sort of cultivating land. And yeah, like that, or? it's difficult to know. The, the farming at this time, and um, there's not so much evidence for cereals. Okay, there, there isn't any evidence, for example, for grinding stones, quern stones from um, from this particular group of houses. Yeah. So um, it looks like they must be importing some of their you know grain yeah. bread that kind of thing um but farming is more to do with the domestic livestock very important cattle and pigs crop growing probably in the small scale perhaps not so important okay and what will happen to these houses when they're finished you um, well, leave them here or? yeah well, they're going to be up until about the end of may and we're going to have two open weekends the two bank holiday weekends in may people can come and have a look around okay. and see what we've been doing and then um in, in about mid-june we're going to be taking them down oh, <laughs> well, that hard they're, not, work. they're not permanent structures they're no. just they're just experiments <laughs> oh dear one of the volunteers <laughs> is crying <laughs> well thank you very much um, I'm talking to Nick, who is one of the volunteers um, at the site. Um, Nick, what what made you want to come and volunteer to do this project? Well, for me, it's a fantastic learning opportunity. Mm. I um, take a lot of people to Stonehenge as part of my job. I'm a a driver guide. I specialise in world heritage. um, And I do a bit of world heritage consultancy. This enables me to learn so much about the way people lived. um, And it... Just it was the most wonderful opportunity. How many opportunities do you get to influence the landscape yeah. of Stonehenge? Yeah. Not very many. And what's been the kind of the most interesting part for you? Is it the actual building, or you know, learning about the the history behind it all? Um, there's so many interesting dimensions. I think the first interesting bit was when we were working in the forest to collect the material. Each of these buildings takes 2,000 rods of of hazel. Um, The interesting thing, the link from the archaeology, is that the spacing between the stake holes is the same spacing that you would use if you were weaving seven-year-old hazel coppice. Um, So those people who do that kind of thing today, making hurdles and so on, recognise that spacing. That's You need seven-year-old hazel. So we go into the into the forest. You learn that these places have been managed for hundreds, probably thousands of years. And um, we used uh, flint axes, bronze axes, as well as modern tools. Yeah. So one of the most fantastic experiences is moving from a flint axe to a bronze axe, and that leap, that evolutionary leap, is just amazing. You wouldn't believe the increased in efficiency that you get from a bronze axe they're as good as anything you'll get down the garden center yeah. <laughs> today you know and so uh there are all sorts of things um uh, we learned in the in the forest i learned that the neolithic was was very smoky and muddy yeah. in january um and then here weaving these things creating the roofs you know there's just so much to explore and so much to learn so for me, it's fantastic. You're looking quite mucky. Um, mm. What have you been up to this morning? What have you been doing? I've been daubing. Okay. We've spent a, much of the uh, the last sort of five or six weeks wattling, yeah. which is weaving the sticks in between the, the vertical stakes. Um, and uh, so we're now effect, effectively putting the plaster on the walls. So wattle and daub is the, the technique. Is that inside and outside? Out, inside house? and outside, yes. And the, the trick is to try and get the... Uh, the daub to kind of join in the middle so it's keyed on both sides yeah. um, so we'll end up with something that looks vaguely like a plastered wall it won't be quite as smooth as yeah. what we're used to these days um, but this technique must go back thousands and thousands of years yeah. um, it, I mean looking around me I mean this the, the middle house looks like it's kind of progressing the, the most mm. is this the one you've been working on the longest uh, probably yes I was involved in doing the the roof yeah. of, of this um, I was experimenting on this other 
more temporary structure, the one that doesn't have any stakehold evidence. It looks a bit like evidence. a teepee. It looks like a teepee. <laughs> I also made another version, um, which was more like a frame tent. Yeah. Uh, and that would be being covered in skins. So nobody's quite sure what these things were. Crucially, <clears> given the, the weather lately, uh, once the, the door, the, the water is all the doors up and the walls up inside, yeah. would that be have been waterproof? Would that have been? Well, the, the key uh, idea with these daubed walls is you have to keep the water off them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have to keep the rain off them. Otherwise, they get washed away. And so much will depend on whether we've got the roof right. right. So they have these very large overhanging eaves which should drop the water clear of the walls. Oh, as soon okay. as you get water running down the walls, you're Had in it. trouble. <laughs> yeah. So that's why they have these huge overhanging eaves. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll let you get back to your work, but thank, thank you very you. much for talking to me. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Hello, Claire. Um, so what, this, this structure here, which um, I described earlier to Nick as a, looks a bit like a teepee, um, how does this one differ to the, the other houses that are being built? Well, the, the, the most important thing about this one is that the poles, the posts, are not in the ground at all because the evidence for this building was just chalk floor okay. with no stake holes in. So we've basically imagined and this is actually the fifth version of this building that's uh, has gone up and it's going to be our final version um so why is it your fifth version did the other ones not work out or they were similar yeah um, but they're slightly different okay um, so inside here the evidence was for a re- roughly rectangular chalk floor with a half in the middle right um, so we're building around that will you be putting a chalk floor down yes we will what stage does that, that come? Is that one of the last things to I do? I think it will be, yes. yes um, once the roof is on. So how long would it take to kind of put this structure together from, from start? Well, from the start, Ooh. how long from working on it? All, all these three buildings together, we, this is our sixth week. Right, okay. So, you know, this, and there's roughly about 20 people working every day Gosh. over six weeks. Is that rain or shine as well? Rain or shine. Gosh. But, of course, we are learning new skills. We've never done mm. thatching before we've never done daubing we've never done weaving hazel yeah. so we've got to learn as we yes. go along and also tying in the not uh, tying in uh, the uh, oh, yes. beams that ring beam up there is supported entirely by the willow lashings right um, and we've got to learn how to tie those knots and make it safe yes so now I'm talking to Luke. And um, Luke, where are you from again, sorry? Uh, I'm from the Ancient Technology Centre in Cranbourne, Dorset. Okay, and you're sort of overseeing the volunteers and the structure of the, of the, right, the buildings. Yeah. So how, how's it all going so far? Um, it's going very well. We're, we're sort of six weeks into the project. Um, the project started actually uh, with two weeks of harvesting in a, in a woodland in Dorset where we, we took flint tools and, and tried to harvest all the materials we, we required. Uh, which was pretty tough. The volunteers we were working with, great bunch of people, mm. but um, very few people in the world have experience with tools <laughs> and constructing Neolithic houses. Quite a niche yes, skill. <laughs> absolutely. So, um, so they've they've come a long way from mm. from sort of understanding raw materials and their their best properties to constructing the three structures that you see in front of you. Okay. And what have you learned from constructing these? I mean, at the beginning, did you have an idea of how they would look and how you'd start doing it? The whole process started with looking at the the original excavation plans and then drawing up uh, sort of concepts and then building models. But even so, what what we've found is that things have changed as we've gone along, um, simply because materials work in certain ways and it's only when you actually use them in life that you understand those properties. So. Um, it's going very well. We're, we're definitely discovering some things. Um, the, the shape of the walls, it, it creates quite a puzzle in some of the structures. They're, yeah. they're kind of squarish buildings with rounded corners. Um, and the rounded corners make huge sense when you're weaving in coppice materials. They're very strong. Yeah. But the straight sections in between are, are actually quite weak and, and seem to sort of flex a fair bit. So... That's kind of led us onto a, a roofing method, which rather than putting in traditionally straight rafters, as you would in an Iron Age roundhouse, for example, yeah. we're actually putting in rafters that, that are locked into the wall and then bend to the right. point of the roof. And it, and it creates a basket effect, effect really. Yeah. Uh, it makes it very solid and stops those walls from spreading. Um, 
So yeah, we're, we're, we're discovering lots. So how do you know that what you're building is actually what they would have looked like? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ultimate question. And, and in short, we don't. But okay. what, what, we're, what we are discovering is a range of methods which are working yep. and a range of methods which aren't. So what we hope to do at the end of this is get a list of methods and styles which we know work yeah. and then come to a decision on, on what actually is constructed at Stonehenge at the new visitor centre. So I suppose my, my personal angle on this really is I would I would like there to be three different roof shapes mm-hmm. and three different thatching materials at the finished buildings because I think it's important not to present the Neolithic as this is how it looked. Yeah. Um, we don't know that from any, any sort of um, period of prehistory. Um, but what we can do is present things that we know work yeah. using the right pollen evidence and the right materials. I suppose like houses today our houses look different to each other so why would they absolutely and yeah i mean it's you know we're, we're probably not looking at teams of house builders mm. who go around like and sort of build a persimmon <laughs> you know a neolithic persimmon complex so so um th- there's always going to be that individual quality in each structure yeah. um and at the end of the day we can't always um look at sort of functional reasoning behind the way things look because we're modern humans yeah and there might be there might be reasons for the way things look which make no sense to us in the modern world yeah um so what's been your favorite bit of the whole project was it the sounds like it's the harvesting perhaps was the, the harvesting was, was good fun <laughs> we uh one the final tree we felled was a was a 40 centimeter diameter pine tree and it mm. took uh, about three hours and 11,477 oh blows with a flint axe um so that, that was quite interesting. Um, yeah. it just, again, what it does is it highlights the fitness of these people and, the, and their sort of stamina. Yeah. But in terms, for me, apart from the, the construction and, and the experiments that we've been doing, it's working with a fantastic team of people. The weather mm. has been tr- atrocious for oh, many yes. weeks. <laughs> um, but people keep turning up and keep putting in a huge amount of effort. And yeah. uh, it's, been, it's been really good. And what do you think we can learn from, from this type of project? I think um, I always find it fascinating trying to reconstruct very early buildings, but essentially the, the modern world, we've, we've sort of fallen into many traps in the modern world in, in quite recent periods, and, and the traps are materials from Brazil and from mm. Africa, and these, mater- these buildings show quite clearly that you can gather materials from your local area, get a small group of people together and produce really sustainably yeah. sound buildings, which work, um, and that's kind of heartwarming in a, yeah, you they know, look fantastic, in a fuzzy sort of really way. Do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well done. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thank you very much Lovely. for that. Cheers. That was Charlotte Hodgman on location in Wiltshire. You can see images of the structures and the volunteers at work at historyextra.com forward slash Neolithic. Before our next interview, I'd like to quickly mention that tickets are on sale for our History Weekend Festival. It's taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of October, and will include talks from some of Britain's leading historians, including Max Hastings, Michael Wood, Dan Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Dominic Sambrook and Kate Williams. For the full lineup and ticket information, visit historyweekend.com. Hand-to-hand fighting in ancient... This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Greece could be a bloody affair, and warriors witnessed some of the most ferocious battles known to military history, none more so than those fought by Athenian citizen soldiers known as hoplites. Charlotte Hodgman caught up with Dr Jason Crowley from Manchester Metropolitan University to discuss what motivated these men to fight and the Athenian social system that moulded them. Firstly, who or what were the hoplites? Well, a hoplite is a specific type of warrior that we find in uh, classical Greece. Uh, he was specifically a heavy infantryman and a close combat specialist. That is to say, he doesn't rely on missile weapons like bows or slings. He engages his enemies at close range with a stabbing weapon, typically a spear. Uh, and what he does on the battlefield 
is exactly the same role uh, as modern infantrymen, uh, our modern infantrymen in the British Army. It's their job to close with and kill the enemy. And that's exactly what the hoplite did. He uh, was tasked with closing with and killing other enemy hoplites, other heavy infantrymen. The name hoplite uh, comes from the Greek word for military kit, hopla. So uh, the hoplite is quite literally the guy with the gear. He's the, we he's the weaponized man. Uh, and this is in uh, distinction to uh, gumnertes, people who were naked on the battlefield, people who literally didn't have armor or proper weapons. Uh, so the hoplite from Hopla is the guy with the gear. And there are four elements to this gear. A primary and secondary means of offense and a primary and secondary means of defense. Mm -hmm. So the first one, primary means of offense is a long thrusting spear with a leaf-shaped blade. And he uses this to stab savagely at his enemies, aiming for face, neck, uh, chest. And this weapon appears to have been, if we can trust the ancient sources, quite delicate. Uh, and in furious combat, the spear often breaks. So he needs a secondary weapon. And this secondary weapon is a short slashing sword. Uh, and we have depictions of hoplites using uh, their swords on pottery. And if they're any guide, then he uses his sword like a man uh, uh, uses an axe to chop wood without any finesse or style, just slashing vertically at his enemy. Uh, he has, uh, as I say, two means of defense. The first primary means of defense is a large round shield called an aspis. Uh, and this is quite massive. It's three feet in diameter. And it has a curious double grip. Uh, one central band located in the center of the shield is, uh, is where the hoplite puts his forearm. So the forearm goes through the central uh, grip. And then he grips a strap at the leading edge of the shield. So it gives him a very strong grip on a really massive shield. And this makes him, in combat, rather a hard man to kill. It must be pretty heavy, I'd imagine, as well. Yes, it's a massive weight. And uh, we'll see uh, later on what, what effect this has on uh, hoplite tactics. Now, because hoplites uh, provide their own kit, if a hoplite was rich enough, he might have some metallic body armor as a secondary means of defense, a metallic breastplate, a metallic helmet. But there are hoplites of varying uh, social classes, and ordinary or more ordinary men would primarily use, if they had body armor at all, either fabric body armor or leather body armor. And Modern reconstructions have demonstrated that this is pretty effective, uh, sometimes even more effective than metallic body armor. And if you think about it, Greece is a pretty hot place. Battles are fought, usually in the summer months, and uh, wearing a metal skin doesn't seem to be uh, such a good idea. Uh, you can't bend down when you're wearing metal armor, uh, and it gets very hot. So uh, it seems... Metallic armor is a status symbol rather than something that's effective uh, primarily on the battlefield. And how were they trained? Training is a very vexed subject. Uh, we have moved on really from a previous generation of scholars uh, who fought uh, in the Second World War or served in the National Service. And these guys uh, looked at the hoplites. They saw they could form up in quite massive formations, sometimes 10,000 uh, men strong. And they thought it utterly inconceivable that uh, hoplites would have no training whatsoever. And so they looked around for evidence of training uh, and they look specifically at the Spartans. And the Spartans, of course, field the finest hoplites in classical Greece. And the Spartans start military training. They're taken from the family home at the age of seven and educated by the state to be the best warriors they can be. So a previous generation of scholars, based on their own experience in the army and based on what they see at Sparta, simply can't imagine a hoplite wasn't trained. 
Now, they look for evidence of training and they don't find any direct evidence of training. But what they do find is that the Greeks loved a particular style of dance called the Pyrrhic, which was done in armour. It's a warrior's dance. And so previous scholars think, well, Greek hoplites need to be trained. This is the only militarised group activity we can find. So this must be the Greek version of basic training. And there are two reasons why I think this is uh, quite simply wrong. Firstly, the Pyrrhic dance consists of a series of moves which include leaps and feints and dodges. And no doubt this was lovely to watch, but it makes no sense in the hoplite's tactical formation. And this is a close order formation. It's based on uh, files of eight men uh, and files line up side by side to produce a formation based on usually eight ranks. Uh, and it's close order, that is, the, the men are close together. So there's simply no room to be leaping about and fainting. Uh, and the second is, if you think about it, hoplites don't really need an awful lot of training. The whole tactical formation is based on the file, that is, men one behind the next. And since all their formations are based on the file, all a hoplite needs to know is how to follow the man to his immediate front. And I don't think you need a great deal of tactical training to learn that skill. So my own view is that outside of Sparta, Greek hoplites receive either very, very little, so little that it's uh, not detectable in the evidence, or no training whatsoever. And my view is no training whatsoever. So these were just ordinary men? These were indeed ordinary men. This, uh, the, the Athenian hoplite flanks, which is what I'm primarily interested in, was a citizen militia. Uh, so ordinary men, without formal training, uh, performing what is essentially a civic duty to fight on behalf of their uh, uh, city-state. So they didn't actually want to fight then, unlike the Spartans, like you say, who were trained from, from a young age? Indeed, the Spartans are socially conditioned uh, to fight. The Athenians, uh, quite interestingly, uh, do they want to fight? Well, the answer to that question is both yes and no. The Athenians, uh, lucky for them, enjoy a real democracy, a direct democracy. That is to say, they directly vote for the policies they themselves adopt. So if they want to go to war, and we know they go to war more years than they're at peace, they vote for it personally, and then they go and fight it. So having voted to go to war, you then go home, take your shield uh, from over the fireplace where it hangs, and you go out and fight. So we know the Athenians fight an awful lot of wars, and since they vote for them, at the strategic level, then yes, they do actually want to fight. But at the tactical level, that is when voters become warriors, and when they face the enemy, then we start to hear uh, very clearly in our evidence obvious signs of fear. Uh, and we have lots of very, very good quality studies on modern soldiers demonstrate that engaging in combat is an intensely fearful activity. Now, after World War II, uh, a man called Stufer uh, led quite a large team of uh, sociologists and psychologists. And they interviewed uh, and conducted research on a vast number of American soldiers who returned uh, following the end of the Second World War. One of the things uh, this team uh, catalogued was feelings of fear, but not only feelings of fear, but the physical manifestations of fear. So they... Uh, catalogue, for instance, men who were afraid uh, experienced chattering teeth. I mean, we, we know these feelings, some of them at least from our own lives. Uh, chattering teeth, shaking hands, trembling knees, a dry mouth, a pounding heart. And some men, uh, not an inconsiderable number actually, suffered from loss of bowel and bladder control. Now, when we look at the ancient evidence the catalogue of fear symptoms that Stufer and his team put together are there for us to see in the evidence. So, uh, for instance, we see 
just before the Battle of Amphipolis in 422, the Spartan commander who was just about to attack a body of Athenian troops saw that the Athenians were visibly trembling. Uh, Aristophanes, uh, a comic playwright uh, from classical Athens, tells a joke about a rather pompous Athenian commander uh, losing control of his uh, bowels when he meets the enemy. And we see in surviving law court speeches prosecutions for uh, men who failed to turn up to fight, who threw away their shields and ran, people who demonstrated cowardice in the face of the enemy. So it's quite obvious that at the tactical level, the Athenians were terrified of combat, just like modern troops. Uh, But what's interesting to me is that the vast majority of them not only fought, but fought extremely well. So once the Athenian state had decided to go to war... um were they compelled to fight? Did they have to fight or could they refuse? That's an interesting question. That, that is a, a very interesting question. And the answer is uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, 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 I'll tell you what I mean by that. So the, the question is really, why do men fight uh, once their status indicated that they should? And I can say two things. I can rule out two possibilities for certain. Firstly, Athenian hoplites do not fight for money. Uh, They do get paid, but uh, the pay is very, very modest. And the system of payment was so unreliable that men thought it was completely unwise to go to war without their own financial resources uh, to buy rations and what have you, because the Athenian state doesn't supply food or arms or equipment. Uh, The man provides it for himself. So... The money is unattractive. And if you think about it, paying a man to risk his life is a very poor way of motivating him because most men would rather be uh, alive and poor than dead and rich. So as a way to get soldiers to fight, payment is poor. Secondly, the Athenians don't fight because they're forced uh, in the same way as the Russians did during the Second World War. The Athenians never develop Uh, a core of NCOs, uh, men in our army, like sergeants and corporals. And they have nothing uh, akin to the Roman army's uh, centurion, whose primary function was to ensure discipline. They have officers, uh, if we were to put it rather anachronistically in modern terms, they have colonels uh, and, and men of senior rank like that. But these men have no coercive powers, almost no coercive powers whatsoever. If they're faced with insubordination, they can fine an offender uh, or they can send him home. And that's it. Uh, so the Athenians don't fight because they're bribed or forced. They fight primarily because they're under social pressure to do so. What the Athenians did, uh, and the Athenians have this in common with other Greek states, is that they conceived of masculinity and manhood to be determined or contingent upon a man's bravery in combat. So if this is the primary uh, determinant of, of masculinity, it doesn't matter whether a man is rich, whether he's good looking, whether he's intellectually impressive, If he was a coward, he was socially worthless. So if he was to claim manhood, he had to acquit himself uh, creditably in combat. And the way the Athenian army was mobilized ensured that he had his own community as his examiner. And what I mean by that is the Athenian army raises contingents of men from local communities called deems. In these local communities, uh, men would live uh, amongst their friends, they'd work together with their neighbours, they'd intermarry, some of them would be blood relatives. These were people who knew each other, who lived together, who worked together. They were friends, neighbours, relatives by blood and marriage. And these men fought together. So a small levy from each local community would go towards forming the larger Athenian army. So you've got to imagine the Athenian hoplite phalanx is lots of these little groups of men uh, who all know each other. Now, when the Athenian army meets 
the enemy. If one of these men loses his nerve, if he breaks, if he drops his shield, pushes past his friends and runs, he can't do so without being revealed to be a coward in front of all of his friends. And his cowardice endangers all of his friends. And so when they return to their local community, they're not going to keep knowledge of his cowardice secret. They're going to spread it around the local gossip network. And that's a big problem for our Athenian. Because Athens, or at least in the local communities of Athens, is a face-to-face community. And in a face-to-face community, a man's reputation counts for everything. And if his friends return from combat and tell everyone what a coward he is, he loses that reputation and becomes socially worthless. And in a society like Athenian society, that's a fate worse than death. So it's better to fight even if you didn't want to rather than come home and face that. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it it's very cleverly makes combat avoidance mm. less palatable than death in combat. So you, you'd, rather, you'd rather choose physical death than a long... Social link, death. Social <laughs> death, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that these people aren't forced, it's that there's a different kind of force operating upon them. And the, you mentioned the hoplites were, were sort of ordinary men. Were, were they led by trained soldiers or were, were these the officers that you mentioned, were they too um, just ordinary people? What we find is that these people are not trained. There is uh, no formal training, but they are highly experienced. The Athenians had a, a wonderfully peculiar system of selecting their senior commanders uh, by direct election. And you had to be of a certain age to uh, be elected as a commander. And that meant that by the time you were eligible to hold a command position, you probably served 10 years in the ranks. So you were a seasoned combat veteran uh, before you were even eligible to be elected as a commander. And if you think that's very different from our own system where uh, men... Uh, graduate from Sandhurst and they go on to command uh, our soldiers very well in combat, but having typically never served as an enlisted man and with no experience before they're appointed to a a combat uh, commander's position. So the Athenians make sure that all their commanders are former rankers with extensive experience of combat. And when they elect them, they elect them on the basis of their capacity for command, their courage, their experience, their past record. And so the tendency is to keep re-electing men who do well. And so your commanders simply get better and more experienced and their uh, capacity for command grows and grows the more they're re-elected. So they're not trained but these people are highly experienced and highly capable. And I suppose the longer they've been fighting, the, the more respect they would have commanded from their, the people around them. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, the, because these people have no coercive powers they, uh, and they can't bribe uh, their men to fight with, with uh, offers of large wages, they only have two means of command. Uh, and that is essentially persuasion and personal example. So they have to explain to their men why it's imperative they should risk their lives on this occasion. So the men are persuaded, they feel it's the right thing to do, they agree to the obligation to fight, and then they lead by personal example. So not chateau generalship, commanding troops from 50 kilometres behind the front lines, but leading your men in combat by fighting in the front rank yourself. So you ask the men to fight and then you lead them by fighting yourself. And what we see, I think it's very creditable, is lots of senior uh, Athenian commanders die uh, even when their troops are victorious. So they pay the ultimate uh, penalty for their position of authority. So uh, military theorists have recognised that this is of all the styles of battlefield uh, leadership, this is by far the most effective in combat. And you've mentioned already that the Athenians, there's evidence of fear um, when they went to battle. Indeed. Um, How did they actually fare in battle, considering they were essentially amateur fighters? Well, I mean, that's one of the the reasons why I ended up studying the Athenians, because uh, 
if you, I wondered uh, when I started uh, studying them, how on earth they made the decision uh, to plunge themselves into such a savage form of combat where you're stabbing people uh, at the closest range while they're trying to stab you. Uh, it sounds utterly horrifying to me. Uh, but they perform extremely well in combat. So, for instance, uh, it's Athenian hoplites, creditably uh, aided by a few men from a tiny city-state called Plataea, who hammer the Persians at Marathon in 490. So the Athenians win the first round of the Persian Wars. And when the Persians come back uh, and they face the Greeks in the climatic Battle of Plataea, in 479 BC, again, it is the Athenian hoplites, not the professional Spartans, who do most of the hardest and bloodiest fighting. So it's no exaggeration really to say that uh, of all the Greeks who contributed to victory in the Persian Wars, it's the Athenians who have the highest claim to uh, credit. So they equip themselves extremely well against the Persians. And once the Persian Wars are over, the Greeks go back to the normal state of affairs, which is fighting amongst themselves. This is their uh, pastime. Uh, a famous war uh, follows the end of the Persian Wars called the Peloponnesian War. It lasts 27 years and it's fought primarily between Athens and her allies and Sparta and their allies. So the Athenians, the amateur Athenians, are up against the professional Spartans. And not only do the Athenians fight all over the Greek world, they fight in central Greece, they fight in the north, they fight in the Peloponnese itself, they fight on Sicily. Every time they fight, they demonstrate uh, an unwavering willingness to plunge themselves uh, into combat uh, and fight to the best of their abilities. Now, the Spartans, you would expect, the only uh, professional army in the Greek world at the time, should really have hammered the Athenians quite quickly, but it takes them 27 years and they have to uh, combine with another Greek superpower, Thebes, who also has a very, very impressive hoplite army. And then they have to ally again with Persia, uh, the mighty Persian empire. So it takes three ancient superpowers to take Athens and her uh, amateur army uh, down and it takes them 27 years. So, these are impressive troops, backed up by a very simple uh, and elegant military system. Yeah. And who would you rather fought in battle, the Spartans or the Athenians, do you think? No, no you're, you're really uh, kind of uh, <laughs> pulling at my loyalties. Uh, I, I think uh, the Spartans were undoubtedly better. So mm. uh, if, if my neck was on the line, <laughs> I think I'd have to join the Spartans. Yeah, but, I think me too. Uh, my, uh, my, my heart lies with the Athenians. And um, how did Athenian attitudes to fighting reflect in their everyday lives, say, compared to that of Sparta? I mean, that's another really interesting question. Uh, the, the whole social structure of Athens and Sparta is, uh, is very different. The Spartan society is dedicated to producing the best hoplites in classical Greece. Xenophon tells us why Spartan hoplites are so impressive and they can do things that other Greek hoplites can't. So, for instance, Spartan armies can perform outflanking maneuvers. They can perform fighting retreats. They can even countermarch to uh, shift the front rank from one side of the phalanx to another to face uh, an enemy that pops up in their rear. Uh, and the Spartans are unquestionably the toughest hoplites in Greece. So we see uh, during a very famous battle uh, called First Mantinea, which took place in 418 BC, uh, the Spartan commander, the Spartan king, uh, issued some very, very foolish orders right before the two armies joined. And this put the Spartan army into absolute chaos. But the Spartans didn't panic. They just carried on fighting and they won the battle despite the disarray their army had fallen into. Uh, when other Greek troops would have panicked and run. So they can do tactically advanced things, uh, perform fancy manoeuvres, and they don't panic and run. They're far tougher than other uh, uh, Greek troops. But the Spartans pay a very, very high price for this level of military proficiency. They essentially distort their entire society 
in order to produce such impressive troops. Uh, Spartan society is highly militarized. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that it resembles uh, a military camp. Spartan men were all full-time hoplites. They start their training at the age of seven when they're taken from the family home. They live most of their lives in barracks eating communal food in communal messes, eating the blandest, most boring food uh, because ostentation in either dress or consumption is uh, repressed at Sparta. They all have to sing the same military songs. <laughs> this sounds like the most boring and dreary life you could possibly imagine. Uh, and when you think about it, what the Spartans are able to do after this long period of training isn't really that impressive. They can conduct fancy manoeuvres, but these fancy manoeuvres would take a modern soldier weeks to learn, not years. And the Spartans train for years and years and years. So we have to ask ourselves, if the Spartans aren't spending all their time learning tactics and engaging in tactical training, what do they learn? And the answer to that question is, they learn toughness and unthinking social conformity the ideal virtues uh, of a soldier, or at least the Spartans' <laughs> uh, version of the soldier. And although this made them impressive warriors, the, the Athenians and their society were very, very different. Their society uh, used uh, social values and the, the structure of their army to produce first-rate, although amateur troops, without the need for extensive social conditioning or expensively trained leaders. And yet Athenian troops were just as tough and they fight just as hard as the Spartans. But instead of living in a dreary society based on social conformity, they lived in a vibrant, chaotic society that was something rather special. Athenian society produced the most impressive men. So men that are still household names today, the playwrights Euripides, Sophocles, Aristophanes, the statesman Pericles, uh, well-known philosophers like Plato and Socrates. These people still have an ongoing intellectual influence. Athenian society produces the most famous architecture, like the Parthenon, that continues to fascinate us. Most importantly, Athenian society produces the most incredible revolutionary system of government, namely direct democracy. And this gave all Athenians, regardless of their social status, the right to directly determine state policy. And it enabled Athens to become, during the classical period, the most powerful Greek city-state the Greek world had ever seen. So I betrayed myself by saying I would fight amongst the Spartans <laughs> to save my own skin. But if I had to be uh, reborn in classical Greece, mm. I certainly wouldn't choose Sparta if I had the option of Athens. That was Dr Jason Crowley from Manchester Metropolitan University. Dr Crowley is the author of The Psychology of the Athenian Hoplite, The Culture of Combat in Classical Athens, which is published by Cambridge University Press. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who contacted us last week was Angie Smith, who lives in Fort Worth, Texas. She says, I've listened to your podcast for the last two years. Now I subscribe to your magazine. Your podcast is intelligent, informative and entertaining. It is the best podcast anywhere. Thanks for the hours of pleasure. Well, thanks for that, Angie, and your check is in the post. Please do keep your messages coming. We're also, of course, on Twitter at History Extra and on facebook.com forward slash history extra. Next week, we'll be in London speaking to the winners of one of the most prestigious history book prizes. Do join us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. <laughs>